Father in heaven, uh, those words that we sing, may they be the truth of our lives. God, may they be more than just a, a melody that we lift up on a Sunday morning, but a lifestyle within which we live. God, that no matter what we may encounter in this world, that we would stand in the power and in the love of Christ. Father, I pray that for every heart that is gathered here um, this morning, that each and every one of us, God, can find this moment uh, to be a moment of rest, to be a moment where we can drop any sort of burden, any sort of expectations, any sort of preconceived ideas and lay them at your feet. God, that we can be open, that we can be vulnerable, that we can be present, that we can be expectant once again, Father. God, for any of us that have perhaps wandered or have perhaps questioned, for those moments, God, where we have wrestled with doubt and uncertainty, those moments where we have been overwhelmed by mistakes, may all those things be brought to you now and help us to be reminded the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to be reminded of the grace that is found in the cross and the empty tomb. We thank you so much, God, that you love us so deeply, that you love us so profoundly, that we're able to gather in such freedom, in such joy, in such expectation. And so help our hearts be once again open to everything that you desire us to hear this morning, that you would be praised and that you would be glorified and our lives would be changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. We read it at the beginning of the service. Let me read it to you again. That after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen. He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 24, two men are walking on the road to Emmaus. And they've been discussing the tragedy of the crucifixion. And all of a sudden, a man comes and walks alongside them and begins to open their hearts and their minds to all the things that the Scriptures had said about this Messiah. And as they sat down at the table, their eyes were opened. In verse 30, it says, When he was at the table with them, he he, being Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. He is risen. It's the essence of not just Easter, it's the essence of the gospel. It is the simplicity and the 
tremendous implications of all that has been accomplished on the cross. This simple phrase, he is risen. That was the message. That was the message. It is the message of our faith. It's the reason we gather here, not just on Easter Sunday, but week after week after week, to remind ourselves of that incredible truth, he is risen. Right, one of the, the things that we can fall victim to, right, one of the tendencies and temptations that we can have is to long for something new, something different. Right? We, we long for something that can be innovative and unique. And part of the reason we long for those things is because that's inherent to our culture. Right? Our culture is a, is a culture of innovation that celebrates the new, the unique, something revelatory. We celebrate the entrepreneurial spirit. And so a lot of times we long for that even within church. Right? We can come in on a Sunday morning and, and long for a new way of doing church, a new type of message, a new something. We long for that innovation. Pastors can fall into that same trap. Right? What's a new way that we can present this? What's a new way that we can try to convey all these, these different truths that we're coming here to proclaim? And I just want to tell you this morning that I've never really seen my job and my responsibility as pastor to present anything innovative, right? to present anything that is, that is new and unique. What I really see <clears throat> as my responsibility, and by extension, our responsibility as a church, is to cling to an ancient truth, to be stewards of an ancient truth. There's nothing new that we're presenting here today. We, we're drawing back into history, right? We're, we're tapping into this phrase that began it all, that has been whispered and spoken of across the world for thousands of generations. It is this declaration that Christ is risen. It, it became, over time, a tradition, right? A tradition that's often referred to as the Paschal Greeting. It started in the Eastern Orthodox uh, branch of Christianity, then moved to the West. And it has been a common uh, refrain, a common practice, literally around the world, Every corner of the globe, brothers and sisters have gathered since the very beginning when it was first mentioned to the women in the tomb and then shared to the 11 and then shared to the other 500 people that Jesus revealed himself to. The message was very profound and simple. He is risen. And that was the news that changed everything. That was the news that that absolutely changed the world. And today it is whispered by some and shouted by others, but that is the ancient truth that we've gathered here to hold on to. Now what's interesting is that when you think about that statement, it's not suggesting some philosophy or some idea, right? It's not some concept that somebody manufactured and came up. It is a statement of historical fact. Now you and I can quibble and, and debate with with each other or with people around the world as to whether or not the resurrection actually happened. There's no doubt that people question it and, and wonder if it's true, but you can't question whether or not the disciples believed it. That's historical fact. My point is this. What they were sharing with each other was exactly what they believed had happened. They believed that Jesus was risen. They were stating an event and it took time for them to really understand the implications of it. But make no mistake, that was the message. That was the, the truth that was declared that got this movement started. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It took time to understand the implications of it all. That's really what the New Testament 
is about, right? An attempt to, to document this moment, this event, and then to discuss all of its implications, right? That, that's why we gather, even to this day, thousands of years later. <clears throat> it's why believers gather all around the world to remind ourselves of that moment, <clears throat> excuse me, but then to also consider all the implications that it carries. And that's exactly what we see at this next section in the book of Romans, Romans chapter three. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. It's gonna be some time before we actually read the scripture for today, but you can go ahead and get prepared in advance. We've been walking through the letter of Romans for quite some time, and there are different sections of scripture that really do a great job of explaining the implications of this statement that Christ is risen. And where we're gonna be today in Romans chapter three is arguably one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament that gives us an explanation of the implications of Christ's resurrection. So it's a beautiful moment, and, it's, and it comes with some tremendous weight because Paul has spent so much time for the first two chapters of this letter reminding us of the problem of humanity, right? Reminding us of the godlessness and wickedness that exists in the human heart and the human heart's tendency to suppress the truth of God, right? To worship created things rather than a creator. And after two chapters of this continual reminder that no one is righteous, right, that the whole world is gonna stand in silence and be accountable to God, after all of this weight and this desperation, Paul offers this simple and incredible shift. But now, it's one of my favorite moments in scripture. He begins to explain the implications of what we have already offered to one another this morning, the implications of he is risen. And we're gonna take some time to look at it this morning. It is so rich in content, just these, these few verses that we're gonna read. So rich in content that, that people have dedicated careers, they've written books, not even just about these verses, but just some of the terms that you find within these verses, terms like justification, terms like atonement, right? It is so rich in content. Now, let me put you at ease. I'm not about to take you to seminary this morning, okay? We're not gonna dive into the depths and the complexity of this verse. What I hope we can accomplish in our time together today is use this passage of scripture to better understand the implications of this truth that Christ is risen, right? To better understand it and to appreciate it for its richness and its complexity, but also not lose the simplicity of what this gospel is, right? The simple aspect of the message that, that this gospel at its essence is the declaration that Christ is risen. And so I wanna try to capture that collectively together, both the complexity and the simplicity of it. And so I started thinking about the best way to do this. And, and there's, a, there's a story that I wanna share with you that I hope creates a picture, right? A picture that we can kinda grab a hold of that will help us maybe get a greater understanding of the complexity and the implications of this gospel, but yet allow us to hold on to it in a very simple understanding and way. All right, so the story I wanna share with you uh, it probably begins around seven to eight years ago. I think that's about when it maybe happened. I had a friend who was getting a new piano and wanted to get rid of his old one. And I can't remember if he reached out by a direct text message or if it was a general Facebook post, but uh, more or less, I got wind that he was getting ready to replace his old one and he wanted to know if I was interested in his old piano. So I went over to his house and I took a look at it. It was this old upright piano, uh, and, and I mean it was old. Uh, it was broken in places that had dings and nicks and scratches. Uh, you played it and it was out of tune. 
Uh, you know how sometimes you sit down and you play those upright pianos and they just have a twang to them? Uh, it was one of those sort of pianos, okay? So it was not in great condition whatsoever. But I was interested because I love the piano and we didn't have anything like that at our house. And so I asked him, I said, well, how much do you want for it? And he said, no, I, you, you can have it. Uh, which was not so much a statement of his generosity as much as it was the condition of the piano. Like he saw it as I was doing him a favor by taking it off his hands. Uh, and so I did, I took it. And we, we took it and put it in our house and it was there in our upper living room. And that was the piano that for the last seven or eight years we've been playing as a family. Our kids learned on it and, and I loved it because I loved the piano. But no matter how often we played, no matter how good you were when you sat down to play, it, it just was of a lesser quality and kind. Right? I mean, the music just was not what it could be. It always had that twang. It was always kind of out of tune. And so even though you could enjoy it, you were constantly reminded something's missing, right? But it was worth it to me to have it because I love the piano. And one of the reasons I love the piano is because my dad taught me how to play. Um, and, and it was a very close connection that I had with him. When I was in high school, a lot of my friends, or several of my friends, closer friends, started getting into music, started playing different instruments, and they formed a band. And I thought that was actually really cool, but I didn't want to just copy them. And so I, I decided not to try to learn the guitar on the front end. I thought, well, maybe I'll try a different instrument. I'll try the piano. And I knew just the person to ask. So I went up to my dad. I said, Dad, can you teach me how to play the piano? And he was more than uh, grateful and, and was happy to oblige that request. My dad's a musician. He, he was a drummer growing up and was uh, very naturally musically inclined and he was more of a drummer. He couldn't read sheet music. He only played by ear. And, and I always thought it was so cool how easy it was for him to pick out a song and a melody on the piano without even really having to look at any music. And so that's kind of how he taught me. He, he show, sat me down and he showed me how to play different chord progressions, how they work together, kind of the rules and the rhythms of music, ways to play it, how to pick out melodies. And he taught me how to play the piano. And so it was one of the things that he and I connected over and really strengthened and I think was a, a serious bond of our relationship. And so I loved having that piano. Now the piano I, I grew up playing and learning on was a piano. My dad had a baby grand piano in his house. And that was a piano that he had actually given to my sister when she turned 16. Uh, my sister is a far more accomplished piano player than I ever thought about being. She can read sheet, sheet music. And so when she was 16, my dad gives her this baby grand piano. He says, now clearly, I've got to keep it at my house, but when you grow up and you have a house of your own, I'll give it to you. And he was true to his word. Many years later, uh, she gets married, she has her first home, and he, he gets the, house, uh, the piano up to her house, I think in St. Louis, correct? Yeah? All the way up to St. Louis to honor his word. And so that now is the piano that she has in her home. And, and so right after he gives this to her, he buys another baby grand, because my dad loves music and loves the piano. So that is now replaced in his home, and he tells me, he says, now this one is yours. You get to have this one. And I was like, man, what a gift, right? Nothing that I deserve, nothing that I'd earned. He just, just gave it to me. He made the same deal, said someday when you get older, you have a house of your own, we'll take it to your house, and it can be yours. Well, I purchased my home with Jennifer about 12 years ago, and this conversation naturally emerges. He asked me, do you want this piano? And we have a smaller home. We didn't really have a whole lot of places for it, maybe a couple of rooms. And, you know, I mean, it could have worked, but it wasn't exactly what we thought we would do in those rooms because it's a larger piano. And so we, we opted to hold off. And we said, well, not right now. Little did we know we would be in that house for another 12 years, and it would go that long without me having a chance to have 
that piano. But it, really no harm, right? Every time I went to go visit my dad, uh, I got to go to his house, and that was the piano I got to play, and we'd get a chance to play together. So it was a very special bond that reminded me of my father. Well, when my dad passed away last year because of COVID, one of the first things I thought of was that piano, how much I wanted it, the way that it could draw me into that bond that he and I shared, the way it could remind me of who he was, what he taught me, how to play. I felt like it could be a a source of, of therapy and comfort for me as I was going through grief and loss. I just wanted it. So I talked about it with my, my stepmom right after his passing, and she mentioned to me, she goes, I know this piano is yours. I know that he gave it to you. Uh, I want you to have it as well, but maybe not yet, right? I just, if we can just have it in our home a little bit longer, to which I completely understood, right? I mean, it was a reminder of who he was, and that was an attachment for her as well. I didn't want to force that or rush that. And then she and I even kind of laughed, like, well, where would we put it, right? There's no place to put it. And so as much as I wanted it, I kind of resigned myself to thinking once again, well, it's just going to take some time before I ever really get a chance to have this piano. And I kind of grew comfortable with that. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, I turned 40. Thank you. Yep. It's a lot of hard work, but I made it. And so I'm celebrating my 40th birthday, and on the day I'm having breakfast with Jennifer up in Fort Worth. And as we're enjoying our breakfast, she starts getting text messages and phone calls. She keeps getting up from the table, and is clearly coordinating something, but I have no idea what she's coordinating and what she's figuring out. And she comes back down, and she sits down, and she says, okay, well, we need to be back home around 11.30 or 12. And I said, that's fine. We can do that. Kind of thought we'd have a little bit longer, but it's fine if we cut the afternoon short. And so gets to that point, and we start driving back home. And as we're driving and getting close to the neighborhood, she goes, now, here's the thing. You can't actually drive up to the house. You're going to have to pull over Uh, in front of our neighbor's house down the street, and you're going to have to get out of the car and just wait in the street on your birthday. And I was like, awesome, let's do it. And so I get out of the car, and I'm literally like standing by myself in the middle of the street in my neighborhood in the middle of the afternoon on my birthday. Uh, She sends my mom and Wu down. My mom had come in town to help with kids and also seeming, so she sends them down. They grab me. We go to lunch, and we go kill time while Jennifer works on whatever it is she's working on. I had no clue what she was doing, none. Uh, All I knew is that she didn't want me to see the house. So I kept thinking, okay, is she getting us a new tree and she wants to get it planted before I see it? Is she getting us a new dog? No way she's getting a new new dog. I know she's not planning a surprise party. I'm not a big fan of surprise. I had no clue, no clue whatsoever. So she finally calls us and says, all right, you can come back home. And so we come home and I stand at our front door and she says, all right, just stand right here, close your eyes. And, and walk through the house. So I close my eyes and I start walking through the house. Now, I don't fully have my eyes closed because I don't want to trip, but I've got my head down. And as I'm walking through the living room, I see uh, uh, some of our furniture has been moved. Like a, a couch that was in one room is now in the living room and that threw me off. And I was like, she got us new furniture, I guess. And I was like, but that's cool. Like I can get excited about a new couch. You know, we can, we can do this. And so she gets me where I need to be and she positions me and she says, okay, open your eyes. And I saw the piano. And we have video of this moment, but I decided not to show you. Um, But it is a picture of simultaneous joy, surprise, gratitude, all of it, all in one. And I was like, is that it? Is, Is that the piano? And she said, that's it. And I just was overwhelmed with joy and emotion. 
Gave her a hug, told her I loved her, told her thank you, hugged my kids, everybody was there, and I sat down at the piano, my kids gathered around me, and the first song I played was a song that my dad wrote for me and my sister and sang over us when we were younger. And it was just everything I could have wanted and more. And I thought about it all, like I thought about the gift that I didn't deserve, the gift of being able to play the piano that my, my father taught me, the gift of the piano itself that he gave me, the effort of my wife just out of her love for me to get it there, the sacrifice of my stepmother to come to a place and say, it's, it's yours, I can let it go. And I was just overwhelmed by all of it. And so now when you hear music played in our home, whether the skill level is there or not, it's of a different quality and kind. It's rich. It's beautiful. That's the gospel. Right? See, life is like a melody. You get a chance to create music with your life, to let your life be a song, a melody that can be sung. The fact that you get to live it all is a gift from your creator. And what he does is he sits down with us and he teaches us how to play this life. Teaches us the way to make these melodies beautiful, gives us rules, gives us rhythms. And for most of human history, it has been an attempt to create a melody according to those guidelines and those rules. But no matter how skillfully you play, no matter what you make your life into, there's always something that reminds you it's of a lesser quality and kind. Something's missing. You can create a melody with your life and, and different notes and different arrangements. You could be really skilled or not, but, but no matter what, it's like sitting at that upright piano. And it's just not of the same quality and kind. And the challenge with the human heart is that we can actually grow comfortable with that kind of music. Right? It can actually just become part of us and we accept it. And we make our lives about something and give our lives to something that is of lesser quality and kind, never fully what it could be. And so when we hit those inevitable moments of disappointment and frustration and difficulty, we cry out, we search for hope. But more often than not, our prayers are, Lord, come and fix this piano. Come and make it better. And what we discover with the gospel is that God's answer to that prayer is, I'm not coming to fix that piano, I'm giving you a new one of a completely different quality and kind. A whole different sort of music and melody that you can now make with your life. And when we see this gift, we're overwhelmed by this grace, this gift that is rooted in our Father's love and sacrifice. It's the gospel. And the song that he has commanded and commissioned and inspired us to sing is a melody that declares he is risen. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to communicate in Romans 3. That's exactly what he's trying to unpack for us, is the implications of that song and that melody. See, when you think about this letter to the church in Rome, he introduces, he gives us foreshadowing there in the introduction in 1 verse 17 when he talks about the righteousness of God, right? A righteousness that will be revealed by faith 
in Christ Jesus. He lays out the thesis statement in 117, but then he takes a drastic shift in 118 and points to the wrath of God that is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness by those who suppress the truth. And he reminds us of our broken state, of our tendency to worship the created things rather than the creator, our tendency to treat each other harshly, to, to create this distance from God, our tendency to cast judgment on one another, reminding us we have no place or room or authority to judge because all of us is guilty. There is no one righteous, not even one. And for two full chapters, he puts the full weight of that desperate reality upon our shoulders so that all we can feel is the overwhelming need for rescue. And he offers that verdict. The whole world will stand in silence and accountable before God, realizing that there is no righteousness that will come by the works of the law, that the law only makes you aware of your sin. And it's there in the middle of that weight where we sit mindful of this music that is played of a lesser quality and kind that we get the reminder something new has been offered. Paul says, but now. Let's read in Romans 3, starting in verse 21. Paul says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Right, it is a rich passage. You can hear the terms that I referenced earlier that people have focused in on and written books about justification, atonement, all these different things. My hope is to acknowledge the richness of these verses by highlighting at least four different elements for us this morning and then connecting it to the simplicity of this truth that Christ is risen and the melody that we are to be singing with our lives. So the first thing I want you to take away from this collection of verses is this reference to both uh, righteousness and justification. But they, they complement one another. The, the idea of God's righteousness is now being revealed. He's been spending two chapters talking about the wickedness of God, but now he goes back to that theme in 117 and says, now let's talk about this righteousness. When we talk about righteousness, what we are saying is what does it mean to be made right? Not necessarily in conduct, not necessarily in behavior, but in relationship, right? To be made right in relationship with God, which complements the idea of justification. Justification means to be made righteous. Now, justification is a term that speaks to condition more than conduct. Let me explain to you what I mean. Right? What he's saying is, is that there is this conduct that we have to be mindful of, a way to live life, a desire to obey Christ and all that he has taught us. There is a right way to live, but that conduct by which we pursue honoring Christ through obedience is sanctification, right? That's this, this daily decision to try to grow in our faith, to grow in obedience. That's the process of, of sanctification. Think of it this way. If I sit down on the piano, the more I play, the better I'll become, right? My, my abilities will grow. My conduct will change. That is sanctification. 
justification is about condition. Justification is the statement that says once and for all, you have been made right before Christ. You have been made right before God in Christ. You have a new relationship. This is the part of you've been given this new music of a higher quality and kind. By nothing that you've done, it's there for you. It may take time for you to learn how to play. It may take time for you to figure out all the different notes, rhythms, and melodies, but it is yours. Right? So what he is saying is that we now have the opportunity to be made right. Our condition can change before God. We no longer stand in silence condemned, but we now have an opportunity for a right relationship with God. So when Paul introduces terms like that, when he introduces this idea of righteousness and justification, if you've been reading this letter at all with any sort of awareness for the previous two chapters, your natural question is, how? How is that possible? Given all that we are guilty of, given our, our human heart's tendency to, to go the other way, to pursue godlessness, to suppress the truth, all these things that we've just encountered, how in the world are we declared right before our creator? And that's where this reference to atonement comes in. Right? So the word atonement is pointing to the mercy seat. It's the, it's the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was believed to be in the Holy of Holies, the temple that was built right, the, the place where God's name would dwell and inhabit, right, and nobody could enter the Holy of Holies. It was too sacred. No one but the chief priest, and the chief priest could only enter by way of blood, and there once a year on the Day of Atonement, the chief priest would go in and offer up sin offerings on behalf of all the sins of the people. Right? This was the sacrificial system that was put in place by the law. This was the way in which you found forgiveness of sins. Now, what Hebrews tells us is that Jesus is the great high priest who enters into the holy of holies not made by human hands, but the one that is made of another kind, the divine holy of holies. And he does not enter over and over again, year after year, but once and for all to offer the forgiveness of sins by the shedding of his own blood. So you think about being held captive to sin. You think about being in bondage to sin, to need to be set free. That's where the word redemption comes into play. How do you find that liberation, how do you find that freedom? Anyone that's imprisoned has to pay a price, right? A price has to be paid, right? Whether that's a, a sentence of time, whether that's the overthrow of an enemy, whatever it is, a price has to be paid. And what we see by this reference to atonement is that Jesus fully pays that price, right? That by stepping in and offering himself on the cross, he is in so doing fulfilling the sacrificial system that was put in place. The sacrificial system is honoring Jesus. He is not abolishing the law. The law and the prophets point to this need. And because of Jesus' willingness to offer his life as a sacrifice by the shedding of his blood, God is found to be just. He is found to be righteous and holy. The system, the law that was put in place is honored by this sacrifice. And yet while God is also seen to be just and righteous and holy, we also see that he is merciful. Because this gift of atonement that is found in Jesus, this, this price that has been paid to set us free was freely given. Not by merit. Not by ability. Right, and so... So the third point of what we see in this litany of verses is not just righteousness and justification and not just atonement, but grace. 
right, that this is a free gift, a gift of love, a gift of sacrifice, a gift of a father. It is freely given. And so we are freely justified by the cross and by all that it carries for us and the way that it cleanses us of our sins. And so how does all of this become possible? How do we receive this sort of justification? This is not applied to everyone. This is not a universal declaration, though it is universally offered. Those who benefit from this and those who receive it are those who have faith. That's the fourth element. This is a righteousness, a being made right, a being restored to this relationship to your creator that only comes through faith, belief, to, to hold to the truest convictions and sincerity of heart. And what is that faith rooted in but Jesus Christ? And specifically, that he is risen. Right? If, if he's not risen, we're not here. No one's talking about it. No one's writing letters. No one's running from the tomb to tell the eleven. The way that any of that begins to come to any sort of fruition, the way that you can even begin to hope for righteousness, begin to even imagine being made right with God and justified through grace and to be able to have your sins atoned for, the only way any of it is possible is through the melody that we hear sung throughout the generations. He is risen. Right? So the complexities and the implications of Easter Sunday are significant it makes you right with God. It is by grace that you can receive it, but you have to believe. And what you're being asked to believe is that Jesus conquered the grave. He's risen. That's the message of the gospel. That's the hope. That's the melody that we sing. Right? And, and think about the simplicity of it. While we could really dive deep into all the different intricacies of all these different truths that you find in Romans 3, I want us to really just cling to the simplicity of what it means to follow Jesus, where your faith is truly rooted, how we hold tightly to those three simple words. Right? This, is, this is common practice if you really stop and think about it, if you just kind of remove yourself from a, a church environment for a second. Some of the greatest concepts, some of the greatest ideas are articulated in a very short and simple phrase. Right? Like if you start learning anything about marketing and business and the corporate world, you, you understand what companies are really after when they think about slogans, right? Slogans, when done well, are designed to convey the whole strategy of the company, right? The, the, the thing that's going to distinguish this company from anyone else, it's gonna help articulate something positive, something that you can respond to, right? And so the best companies that we've ever seen are able to achieve all of those different things articulate all those different things in a very short, succinct phrase. Have you ever noticed that most of those slogans and phrases are five words or less? Right, think of it. Just do it. Nike. The real thing. Coke. I'm loving it. McDonald's. Can I get an amen from McDonald's? No, let's not do that. Quicker, picker, upper, bounty, think different, apple. All of it, simple. And it's powerfully communicated. Now, I'm not bringing that up. Hear me. I'm not bringing that up to try to suggest or communicate to you all that this is the slogan of the church or to invoke some sort of business practices when we think about the gospel. I'm bringing it up 
so that we can understand the simplicity of what it is we say we believe. Because it's so easy for us to overcomplicate things. It's so easy for us to make church and faith and following Jesus into so many other things that it isn't. To to make it about politics or ethics or conservative or liberal or worship style or philosophy, all these different things, and we spend all this energy singing a melody that is weeding us into the complexities of things that get us distracted from the chorus that we should be singing. The essence of what it means to be a believer is to declare over and over again, Christ is risen. That's what the church was founded upon. That's what the church believed at the very beginning. Think back to the disciples, right? Imagine this for a moment, right? The the disciples, though they followed Jesus, they were still singing a song and a melody of a lesser quality and kind. They were still, even in following him, picturing themselves playing at that upright piano, playing a melody that wasn't exactly what God had intended, Right, so they got a front row look at all the things that Jesus accomplished. They got a chance to see the incredible power and magnitude of his miracles. They got a chance to to see his authority. They got a chance to hear his teachings. And they even arrived at a place where they believed he was prophet. He was the Christ. But what they were asking and expecting was, Lord Jesus, come and fix this piano. Come and fix our lives. Come and liberate us from Rome. Come and restore the Davidic kingdom. And so when they saw Jesus on the cross, their hopes were devastated in a profound way. Imagine that for a moment. When they saw Jesus on the cross, the way they reacted initially was, there are no more miracles. Right? His authority has been stopped. His teachings have been silenced. This is a verdict, once again, of this human reminder that all of us know whenever we sit down and we play this music of a lesser quality and kind. It was a verdict that reminded them painfully, death wins again. So imagine, overcome by that reality, that despair, and hearing those words, he is not dead, he's risen. It wasn't about philosophy, it wasn't about seminary, it wasn't about ethics, it was a statement that the tomb was empty, and that was the message that sparked this movement from village to village and town to town to ultimately the ends of the earth. Over and over again, brothers and sisters declaring, he is risen and the significance of that truth. Because if he's risen, all of it has changed. What they begin to discover, he wasn't coming to fix this melody, he was giving us a new one, a new song to sing. And that is exactly the song that we should be singing to declare with one voice that Christ is risen. It's exactly what the church believed. Here's my question this morning. Do you? Do you really believe it? I know you can say it back to me. I know we can reference it. 
but do you believe it? Is it the melody that your life sings? Or have you drifted off into a different quality and kind? Have you drifted off to sing a different tune? Do you really believe it? Because when we believe it, everything changes. (laughs) This is the song we've been called to sing, church. This is the melody we've been asked to lift with our voices. This is where it all begins, that we believe Jesus is risen. And when we truly believe it, what it means for you and me is that there is nothing we can encounter in this life that is greater than that truth, good or bad. Nothing that we can face that is greater than the reality that Christ is risen from the dead. And so what that means is that when we go through things and we live this life and we're reminded of our need and our our desperation for a Savior, we have an answer. We have a song that we can cling to that carries us through. So when you're, you're overwhelmed with loneliness, when you begin to question and have doubts, when you begin to struggle with addiction, when you begin to to wander off and make mistakes and be overwhelmed with shame or you get confused or you begin to commit yourself to other ways of thinking and other motives and other priorities and all these different things and when you begin to just become overwhelmed by all of it, the answer is he is risen. It's the song of heaven. It's the song of the church. I've been alive 40 years And I know that there are a lot of other things ahead of me. But I can tell you that in these 40 years, the hardest thing I've ever had to do is bury my father. Without question. I understand that it's a bit of a rite of passage. Children often have to bury their parents. And I know I'm not alone in that feeling. Many of you here have walked those similar roads. And you understand what it's like to look upon someone you love and to ask yourself, do I really believe this? Do I really believe it? Because if I don't, if I don't believe my father will be raised from the dead, then I don't really believe Jesus did either. And yet if I do believe it, it changes everything. And I can tell you that as I wrestled with those doubts and I went with those questions and tried to navigate those seasons, the song that I kept coming back to and my heart kept clinging to through all of it was this belief, Christ is risen and so will we. That changes it all. What we begin to see with that reality is that the cross and Easter Sunday and the essence of this gospel, it's not about ethics, it's not about morality, it's not about all these other things that we can so often make it. It is about the resounding verdict that death doesn't win, that Christ is risen and so will we. And if that is true, the song that we're singing 
is of another kind. It's the song that will join the angels. It's the song that will join every tongue, tribe, and nation when we gather around his throne and we discover that he sings with us again as we all declare he is worthy, he is holy, he is alive, he is risen. And so cling to that melody, church. Make it the song of your life. When you're overwhelmed by the brokenness of this world, in whatever capacity, be it the things that we see transpiring across the globe or the things we experience within, and you feel like you're going through a season of life, you're just walking through the darkness of shadows, remember, there is no darkness that this light cannot pierce through. And believe that to be true because you know he's risen. When we see creation groaning, when we see it being subjected to bondage and decay, and we begin to wonder and anticipate and think about that day when all will be made new, to really believe that a new creation is coming, a new heaven and a new earth, we can believe that to be true because we know he is risen. We can gather together, not just week after week and year after year, but day after day, and remind ourselves of this ancient truth, Christ is risen. And when we remind ourselves of this, it gives us opportunity to convince ourselves and encourage ourselves one more time that our Father, he truly loves us. It reminds us that the Spirit of God is here, moving, living, and active. It is moving among us. It reminds us that he fully intends to dwell again with us. We can be assured of all these things because we know he is risen. And so when we go through life and we ask ourselves, is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? We can declare to one another, church, that we know he is because we know he is risen. And so let me offer it to you one more time. And I want you to respond. And I want you to respond with conviction, with belief. And I want you to respond. And as you hear these words spoken by your brothers and sisters, let this ancient truth be the remedy for your soul, your heart, and your mind. But let us affirm once again, church, what we have always declared to believe. He is risen, church. Is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you so much that you give us the opportunity to sing a new song. God, we are overwhelmed by your grace. We are overwhelmed by your mercy. Father, that we stand condemned and convicted, and yet you, in your great love and in your rich mercy, decided to send your only son as a sacrifice on our behalf, Father, that by his wounds we could be healed and we could be restored, God. It goes beyond comprehension. It goes beyond words. No matter what song we sing, what prayer we pray, what scripture we read, we cannot fully fathom all that has been done by you and through your love. And so may we explore the complexity but may we rest in the simplicity. Forgive us of the times in our lives where we try to make 
following you into something that it isn't, and we get distracted and we grow wayward. Draw us back to the essence of this chorus once again and let our lives reflect the beautiful melody that has been whispered, has been shouted, and has been offered by brothers and sisters for thousands of years. Let us live a life that declares a risen Christ. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.